Well, believing scripture to be important to be familiar with and to base our lives on, um, we wanted to get stuck into the Old Testament. Um, and um, so <clears throat> each week we're going to try and bring you a, a key event, a key uh, part of the Old Testament story. But as with all these things, trying to cover off um, a whole testament of scripture um, in one series is nigh on impossible. So I commend to you, when you see the books of the scripture that are in the Old Testament that we're looking at each week, do go away um, and read them in more depth. But here we go, 60-second challenge, overview of the entire Old Testament. Are you ready? I did this with very few breaths earlier. God created everything good. But Satan led Adam and Eve into disobeying God and ruined everything. Eventually it got so bad that God sent a flood and wiped out everyone except Noah and his family. When the people got cocky and tried to make the Tower of Babel, God confused their language, so they scattered over all the earth. God chose Abraham and made a covenant with him to bless and use him to bless everyone else. He has a son Isaac, who has Jacob, who has 11 sons. Jacob, after wrestling with God, gets the name Israel. It means wrestles with God. His sons become the fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel. The whole family moved to Egypt and are subjected to slavery for 300 years. Then God uses Moses to save them by bringing 12 plagues on Pharaoh and Egypt. Finally, in the Exodus, they escape through the parted waters of the sea. On the other side, God gives his people the Ten Commandments and a bunch more. God wants to give them the promised land, but he promised that he promised to Abraham. But when they get to the edge of it, it, they're afraid of the inhabitants. And so God makes them wander in the wilderness for 40 years, where God provides for them. Joshua takes over from Moses and brings Israel through the parted Jordan River, and they conquer a whole bunch of people and land. For a while, God rules the nation of Israel through judges, but the people were not obeying God. They followed other gods, so God let them be conquered. They repented, and God restored them. This happened seven times. Finally, the people demand a king like all the other nations. The prophet Samuel appoints Saul king first, and then David, the best king ever. The kings after that are mostly rotten, and the people too. Prophets keep telling the people to return to the ways of God, or else God will punish them, but they don't listen. The kingdom gets divided into two kingdoms, Israel and Judah, and eventually God lets them both get destroyed by foreign armies. Israel is sent all over the place, dispersed into exile. Daniel serves the occupying kings. The prophets tell the depressed people of Israel that God has not forgotten them, and he will send a saviour, a Messiah, who will restore Israel. Finally, the king of Persia gives permission for the Israelites to return to the land, and Ezra and Nehemiah help to rebuild, while Esther saves the Jews from being wiped out. The story of the Old Testament ends with the Jews waiting for the Messiah to more fully restore Israel, as the prophets have predicted. Thank you very much. Sorry, this is not dramatic effect. I need to do this. There we are. I noticed that the note takes among you didn't even try to keep up then. So first, who is Joshua? Well, Joshua took over from Moses as the leader of the people of Israel. He's one of the spies who Moses sent into the land of Canaan to investigate the land and who was in it. And in the book of Joshua, we find ourselves discovering that the Israelites, after years in the wilderness, have reached Canaan and have conquered it. All the tribes of Israel under Joshua's leadership have entered the land. 
to get to this point where we are this morning, the Israelites have fought battles against the inhabitants and have divided the land up amongst the twelve tribes of Israel. Later on in the Old Testament, we'll see the people of God divided into those two kingdoms, Israel and Judah. But for now, the story of liberation from Egypt under Moses sees the people of God under Joshua's leadership together in one admittedly large place. And a slight side point for me, there's something powerful about the experience of sharing in suffering as a community. And there's a powerful lesson for us as a church that when we go through difficult and challenging times, and there will always be challenging aspects of our life together as a Christian family, if we are prepared to stick together under God's grace and enabling, we will learn lessons about resilience and what it is to find God through periods of suffering. The story of the Israelites in the Old Testament is one of periods of slavery, suffering, and battles to realize a home of their own. And I wonder, as I look at you, you know, how many of you um, have people who have stood with you in times of hardship and struggle um, during the battles that you faced in your life? And I wonder how those, how those um, standing with others or being part of a group have, who have endured suffering together have influenced the depths of your relationship. If you're looking for two words that sum up the whole um, canon of Scripture, the whole of the Bible, not just the Old Testament, but the New Testament too, I offer you these two words, promise and fulfillment. The promise of the Old Testament and the fulfillment of the New. And here in the book of Joshua, we see not just the people of Israel entering a geographical space, that was Canaan, but also entering into the covenant promise of God that was revealed to Abraham in Genesis 12. If you've got your Bibles open, would you go to Genesis 12 so you can look at this scripture with me? I'm going to turn with you. Genesis chapter 12, it's on page 12 of the church Bibles. And there at the start of the chapter we read these words. The Lord said to Abraham... Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And for the people of Israel and for us today, there is a truth here that when God makes a promise in Scripture, he keeps it. The word of God is true. The promise made to Abraham, reaffirmed later on in Genesis to Jacob, becomes a lived reality for um, the people of Israel under Joshua's leadership in Canaan. There have been periods, in fact, about 300 years or so of slavery. There has been suffering in the wilderness and elsewhere. There have been battles in the land that was promised to them. But God's promise that, he, that they would inherit this land has come to fulfillment. 
Is that just a promise fulfilled for the people of Israel? A specific group of people in a specific place at a specific time? No. If we're, to li- if we're willing to live in relationship with Jesus Christ, we too have an inheritance. But our inheritance is not Canaan, it's salvation in Christ Jesus. So if you will, let's go Bible hopping again. Let's go into the New Testament, into the book of Ephesians. And that's on page 1108 um, in the Church Bibles. Ephesians um, chapter 1 um, on page 1108 in the Church Bibles. And I'll begin to read at verse 11. (laughs) In him... We were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. You are marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. We'll come back to that point in just a little while. But let's turn back now to Joshua chapter 24, um, this morning's passage. You'll want to keep it open now on Joshua 24. We're going to remain there. And we'll begin with verse 1. Then Joshua summoned, assembled all the tribes of Israel at Shechem. He summoned the elders, leaders, judges, and officials of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. And I want to suggest to you this morning that as we go through these verses from chapter 24, they offer us a model of discipleship that has something to teach us and equip us in our walk with Jesus. First of all, to go back to verse 1, there is an assembly. Joshua assembles the people of Israel at Shechem. Now, Joshua's ancestors have history on this soil in Shechem. In in Genesis uh, 35, um, Joshua's family um, were called to rid themselves of foreign gods. And on this very same soil, in in this same location, Joshua is about to challenge the people of Israel to do likewise, to rid themselves of the foreign gods that distract them. This isn't a business meeting. This is a place of worship. We're told in verse 1 that the assembly presented themselves before God. Now this might be a physical reference to the tent of the meeting in which they were uh, gathering. It might be a reference to the Ark of the Covenant, which was the symbol of God carried round with the people of Israel. In fact, the, the symbol of God's presence that journeyed with them from slavery in Egypt to um, the land of Canaan. Or it might just be that they presented themselves in worship spiritually before the gods who had been faithful to them. But this is a worshipful gathering. They are gathered in God's presence. This is church. And I can't imagine 
living out my discipleship in Christ, in Jesus, in isolation from other believers. The sharing in worship together, the learning from each other, the standing with each other in prayer, the being a community around each other, both in times of suffering and celebration. I can't imagine being a believer in isolation from the body of Christ, which is the church. And it's often come to me in my ministry that as as a church leader, I'm asked the question, do you have to go to church to be a Christian? And I often pause before seeking to try and help explore that question with the person asking it, because inherently I believe it to be the wrong question. The question I want to ask is, if you are a Christian, why would you not want to go to church? It starts in the wrong place. Our discipleship in Jesus Christ is lived out with others. It's not a journey for us to take alone. So be committed to gathering for worship, just as the people of Israel were gathered. Make Sunday morning or wherever you worship a priority to be with fellow believers. Because this is important and grounds our life in Christ together. So moving on from verse 1, we enter a block of verses from verses 2 to 13, where we read of God's faithfulness to the people of Israel. God, speaking through his prophet Joshua, tells of his faithfulness. In verses 2 to 4, we see the promise of land and descendants. In verses 5 to 7, we recount the freedom from captivity in Egypt. In verses 8 to 13, even when the Moabite king Balak hires Balaam to pronounce curses on the people of Israel, he ends up, by the grace of God, speaking blessings over the people of Israel and does so again and again and again. So God has been faithful to his people. But let's draw out this point, because if we had the time to delve into each of those events, the promise of land and descendants, the captivity in Egypt, and the battles with the inhabitants of Canaan, if we had the chance to delve into the detail of those events, we would find out that there was suffering, that there was challenge, that there was doubt. Believing in Jesus Christ is not a ticket to an easy or trouble-free life. It is an invitation to live in a covenant relationship with God where he will be faithful to the promises he's already made to us. And if you and I look into our life story, if we look into the events and encounters of the past week even, we will see the faithfulness of God, and of that I'm confident, and we will have testimonies of God at work in our lives. It's a useful spiritual exercise um, to, to practice gratitude or thankfulness at the end of each day, to actively reflect on where God has been in our lives. Um, because the more we look, the more we see the, the footprints, the handmarks of God at work in, in our journeys. Let's move on to verse 14. Now, the fear, now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worship beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. So in response to this faithfulness of God, we should do two things. We should fear the Lord 
which doesn't have anything to do with being scared of God. It has everything to do with revering God or being in awe of God, recognizing God for the things he has done, the character of who he is, and the promises he has made to us, his people. So we should fear the Lord. Secondly, we're to throw away the gods that uh, that their ancestors worshipped. And again, this could be read on two levels. The people of Israel were likely to have physical statues, idols, uh, made of precious metals and jewels that would have been passed down from their ancestors. So these were precious objects that would probably had great material value. And imagine that your, your father or your grandfather passes on something or your mother passes you on a family heirloom. These would have been things, quite aside from whether they were idols or false gods, and they were, um, that would have had value to the people who possessed them. But Joshua knew that it was so important that people had this fear of God that they were to throw away anything which was a distraction from worshipping and being faithful to the covenant um, that the people of Israel were called to live in with God. So there was that physical level about the physical thrown away of these distractions. But there also, of course, is the spiritual dimension to that, which is that recognizing that God is jealous for us, his people. We're told that in verse 19, that the Lord is a jealous God. And just like the use of the word fear in scripture, the use of the word jealous generally communicates a desiring on the part of God that we should worship God and seek him out alone, that we should be focused on the Lord our God in our lives. So there's that spiritual dimension to the people of Israel being implored to throw away um, the statues of other gods. Let's move on to verses 24 to 26. (coughs) And the people said to Joshua, (coughs) We will serve the Lord our God and obey him. And on that day, Joshua made a covenant for the people. And there at Shechem, he reaffirmed for them decrees and laws. And Joshua recorded these things in the book of the law of God. Then he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak near the holy place of the Lord. Joshua made a covenant for the people. The people have now renewed their intention to follow um, the Lord their God. When challenged by Joshua within the passage that, you know, you're not going to follow God. No, no, you've got these other deities, you've got these other idols. You're not really going to follow the Lord your God. And they reaffirm, no, as for us and our households, as for us as a people, we will follow the Lord. There's a renewal of the covenant first made with Abraham and Jacob, Joshua's ancestors. And we live in a covenant too, and it's a useful opportunity to draw out that at Camborne Church, if you're a member, you are part of a covenant relationship. And a covenant is not a passive agreement, but a deep, meaningful binding of people and groups together. And in our case, so that we might live out our task to be the church more readily. As a church leadership, if you're a member, we commit ourselves to pastoring you and enabling the fullest use and application of your gifts in the life of this church. 
as you'll come, as you'll hear when we pray um, in our intercessions later on in the service, we will pray for members and people connected with our church as part of our prayer diary. And as part of that reciprocal covenant relationship, you commit to making this a regular place of worship. You commit to be here. You commit to use your gifts and you commit to pray for the church leadership. You're part of a covenant relationship. But whether you're a church member or not, the point here is the same. To fulfill that command given to us in John, that those who seek to follow God must worship in spirit and in truth, we first have to live in faithful relationship with him. Because I think the thing that the challenge that is being offered here to the people of Israel is to turn up at the tent of the meeting and to passively go through the motions is not enough. To really serve God, to really live in fear and awe of God, to yield before him, is to live our lives in faithful relationship with him. So how can we do this? Well, last week, a number of us found ourselves in Papworth at a Pentecost celebration event organised by the Papworth team. And Michael Thompson, who's the principal of Ridley Hall College in Cambridge, um, came and spoke. And he made a point which has really impacted me, and so I wanted to share it with you. He was talking about our tendency as Christians to pray for more of the Holy Spirit to fill our lives And then he made this point. He made the point that the the biblical truth is that we already, as Christians, have the fullness of the Holy Spirit residing, dwelling within us. You know, if you just go back to the Ephesians passage, we have been marked with a deposit that is the Holy Spirit who has been deposited within our lives. So we already have the fullness of God through his Spirit dwelling within each of us. And our task is to let that spirit already within us claim more and more of our lives. So rather than just asking for a spiritual top-up, if you like, it's a case of inviting the Holy Spirit, who is already there, to claim more of our lives so that daily, weekly, monthly, yearly, we became more and more renewed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And then we claim that inheritance that's promised to the people of Israel that they would possess a land, a land of milk and honey of provision. And we too are promised an inheritance that if we live in God by the leading of the Spirit, he will lead us into the fullness of life in him. Let's pray.